0: Hi, welcome to Block Talk Radio Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host. Today is September 11th, 2018, and this is Safe Recovery. And today I'm very, very pleased to have on Maya Solovitz, who's coming to us from New York City. And we're going to talk about whatever Maya wants to talk about. I'm doing a lot of research on you, and I think you have a lot of good things to say Her new book, which came out two years ago, is called The Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction. And just a little bit of uh, more background about Maya, she is an award-winning author and journalist. By the way, that book is a New York Times bestseller. She attended Columbia University and graduated from Brooklyn College. She has been awarded the American Psychological Association Division 50 Award for contributions to the Addictions, the Media Award from the American College of um from a what is that Neuropsychopharmacology, and the Drug Policy Alliance 2005 Award, Reacher, Edward Breacher Award for Achievement. Um, her personal experience: she was a former uh, addict and. Um, and her extensive knowledge of the scientific literature on addictions and drug policy brings a very, very unique perspective to her work. Uh, She also wrote a book, uh, The Boy Who Was Raised, as a Dog, and as other stories, and it was one that's very interesting to me. I don't know if we're going to be able to cover all these topics, but Help at Any Cost, How the troubled Teen Industry Cons Parents and Hurts Kids, And and then she also co-authored a book, The Recovery Options, A Complete Guide, How You and Your Loved Ones Can Understand and Treat Alcohol and Other Problems. I didn't know about that book. Um, She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, New York Magazine, Newsweek, Salon, Oprah Magazine, Daily News, and many more. And she's appeared on Oprah, CNN, MSNBC, and NPR. So no more introduction. We will now bring on Maya. welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Uh, Thanks so much for having me.
0: Sure, how are you?
1: I am good. I am busy, but I am good.
0: Good, good. Yeah, I see you're very busy. Now, I was wondering because there's so much that we could talk about. I did, you know, uh, The Unbroken Brain, um, but then I saw this fantastic New York Times op-ed piece that you just did, and I was wondering if maybe you want to talk a little bit about that and how you got that out there? It's, I thought it's really, really current with what's going on. Sure, in yeah. The country. I
1: mean that that was um, that was sort of spurred by a sort of general frustration with um, coverage of the um, opioid crisis that mm-hmm. um, um, basically left everybody feeling hopeless, and the only images you see are like people mm-hmm. shooting mm-hmm. up or dead people. Um, and, you know, you see, like, jails and police and courts. Right. And right. the only vision of recovery that is usually presented is somebody who is in a 12-step program who's totally abstinent from everything or who is, like, constantly relapsing. Um right. And we don't see um, sort of images of the wide variety of uh, recovery that exists. And actually, most people do recover from opioid addiction. Um, These days, that is a harder statement to say because fentanyl is so deadly. But Mm -hmm. um, historically, um, with heroin and with prescription opioids, most people have eventually recovered. And with prescription opioids in in particular, um, uh, most recovered within five years. Um, yeah. So it is, you know, we just get a very distorted picture of this from the media.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I really feel it, too. I was wondering how we to, to break through and get it in the New York Times. Like, how did that happen? Because I do think it's really important and, you know, it's oh, going thanks. on. Well, I mean, and-
1: I... Yeah, I have um I have written um for their op ed page um you know from time to time and mm-hmm. I have um, recently just sort of made an effort to um get in there um as much as I can. Um they don't pay enormously well. Um
0: but it is um <laughs> important really? Times. Uh, it's really important. Yeah, I saw one that you did in January, The Wrong Way to Treat Opioid Addiction. That one was great, but I love that this one had pictures. You no, know well, the, I
1: love, that what what happened yeah. there was really interesting because, um, so basically, I was following up with the editor I was working with on something else um that actually I still need to follow up on um but um he was like, "Oh, let's not do this now, and I'm like. I was just sort of, okay, um, you know, I'm really pissed off by that. Like, it was just sort of like, it wasn't even really a pitch. I was just like, this is really annoying. We should do something about this. And he was like, well, this photographer just basically said the same thing to me. So why don't mm-hmm. we do this as a photo essay? I'm like, yes, I'm there. Let's do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And
1: then it was like a sort of, you know, um, I mean, I, ha- I had ages and ages ago, I was a producer for Charlie Rose. And when you are sort of producing something visual and producing something that you need um, a small number of people to represent a large number of people, um, right. you really have to be careful about a wide variety of diversity. So I was like, right. okay, you know, I mean, I was, I was really delighted that the person I got from Smart Recovery was also on buprenorphine, so I could check off
0: two things of that category. Um, right, right. And then,
1: <laughs> you know It's so um, good
0: and, I mean it really is a broad section It's a beautiful Yeah, no, I mean I tried uh, like right? I tried yeah. my
1: hardest to get like The maximum information about this Into the tiniest amount of words um, And mm-hmm. you know So um, I was very glad that I could use um, uh, People like Zach and Brooke who Yeah, Who have I both know thought mm mm-hmm enormous amount about this like that you know there's there's many many people in recovery obviously um but there aren't all that many who have just thought about it as deeply as those two have so I was really glad because then they could say a lot in like you know very few words um and similarly yeah. um Jacques was an amazing find because um natural recovery like that people usually just don't speak out um uh-huh. and you know he has uh-huh. been a public school teacher for like 30 years And he had this past that nobody knew about. So it was like I was really honored and delighted that he was willing to, um, you know, share that and come out about that. um, Because it's a common story, but it's one that we don't hear. Um, And similarly, Tino, who really, I mean, any one of those people, and Valor, like everybody was great. I was just like so delighted with um, the people that I ended up finding. And, of course, you're always sad with people that you wanted to include but couldn't. Um, but, um, you know, I, I thought we got a really, um, really great cross-section. And I was really glad, particularly for Valerie, whose name is even more unpronounceable than mine. I know. <laughs> How do you say her name? I don't. I, I'm not <laughs> <annoyed with talking laughs> i not. I I apologize for that. Um, but um but she was absolutely she is absolutely lovely and um, yeah. I really wanted to include a native voice because actually um American Indians are the hardest hit by the opioid epidemic, like not white mm-hmm. people. And there voice is almost never heard. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, oh. Um, you know, and I mean, one of the things that I, I wrote another piece about this at one point, um, because there's been this idea that, oh, like, you know, um, the reason um, uh, indigenous people have problems with alcohol is like some kind of genetic thing. That yeah. wouldn't account for why they have problems with opioids, right? And so no, right. well, gee, what is actually the common thing that indigenous people around the world share? It's trauma, it's oppression, it's colonization, mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. genetics. Um right. and so you know, so like just sort of debunking those myths around that, um, I was really um it's it's just sort of a really interesting area and people um, you know, often neglect it. So I was I was really um Glad to be able to get the opportunity to report um, on that and, you know, sort of let people know that, like, this is a very silly way of looking at, oh, like all these people who have different genetic backgrounds all have this, Mm -hmm. but they have oppression in common, but it's the genes that caused
0: it. Mm -hmm. Um, Right, right, right. So um, wild. she says the attempt to treatment at least 20 times, she had about nine overdoses, and her last one, almost she went blind, and then it says here um, she went to con- conventional treatment, but it didn't work. So we know that was probably twelve step. And then she found yes. her roots. She began to. Ta- I love this uh, Native American ceremonies and praying using ceremonial pipes and tobacco. Uh, it's just uh, really drumming, you know, really beautiful. And even the fact that the, the first article the, uh, the guy went to smart recovery and why he liked that. Um, you saw so you covered someone who was on antidepressants. Um, you, you covered the, um, you know, the gay community, which I thought was great. And I mean, yes, and then yes. Zach, who's the really a journalist there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really, I, I think that, but I, I agree with you because with, um, the, the overdose of, uh, Demi Lovato is what was making me a little crazy with the narrative and that, you know, Anderson Cooper just brings on Dr. Drew, and I'm like, where's Maya? Where's, oh. like, somebody, like, you <laughs> it's, it's, it really kind of need Sanjay Gupta, you know, and you no, and a few I know. And I mean it's people, like right? I mean, you know, Dr. Drew had a 14%, I, if I'm
1: remembering the statistic correctly, but it's over 10% death rate on celebrity rehab.
0: Nearly uh-huh. all
1: of them were from overdose. And he and the people that um, were on that program um, sort of had this uh, like one of them um, one of his like counselor types is like you know uh, Suboxone steals your soul, and what? you know they, they were they were taking people off of successful methadone maintenance and well. pushing them into abstinence. Um, with like one guy experiencing like psychosis due to withdrawal which you should not do because you should not be withdrawing somebody that fast without appropriate medication anyway um, it's just like this guy should not be quoted anywhere as an expert right. on addiction right. I am not a I doctor know. but I don't kill 10% of my patients
0: <laughs> I know no have you ever <laughs> tried do you have a publicist that you could get on like one of those shows? We really need I mean, this yeah, voice, it's like, your voice. <laughs>
1: Thank you. No, I mean it it's like I I certainly try to do as much media as I can because I want to try to combat like these kinds of myths as much as possible. Um right. but it it's really um you know the as as a former producer, I can tell you that producers are lazy and they call the people that they already know. Mm-hmm.
0: Um
1: and also these days like um uh I have many fellow um book writer friends and mm-hmm. um Getting any TV or radio these days is really difficult because of Trump.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> because that terrible. It's the, so yeah, bad. Yeah, it can up all the media. <laughs> um, and so nobody can, like, you know, every day there's a new something. And so you know, I've known several people who've done very important books and got booked on major shows and then got canceled, you know, because of one of these things after another. <laughs>
0: Wow, yeah, when they finally the whole thing that happened with Pennsylvania and the the attorney general reading that complaint like the 25 minutes it took him about the sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. I had to watch that on YouTube. So, I went onto my YouTube, you know, uh, app on tell my television because this is really important this breaking news right about the sexual stuff, you know, abuse with these kids. Yeah. And I'm watching waiting for this to come into the news cycle. And so finally uh what's his name? He's from New York, uh Cuomo does it, right? And he has somebody and I'm like, yes and I'm like tweeting him and the other I'm like, please, like you have to report this stuff. Like Trump we don't, there's so much that we get like enough <laughs> No, no,
1: it's really I mean enough. and it's 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 a it's a real dilemma for everybody in the media because like every single one of these scandals that has lasted like one day in any other administration, would be like six months of daily coverage of how bad this scandal is. But right. now it lasts like half an hour because there's another one, and it's just yeah. No, I mean that that's a whole other thing. But um, the um, it, interestingly, like the opioid story, because there have been so many deaths, um, unfortunately, um, mm-hmm. it has been one of the few things that that has broken through at least a little bit. Right,
0: right, unfortunately, right. Unfortunately.
1: It tends to well, get this kind of coverage that is problematic.
0: <laughs> right, right. Well, do, you won't mind if I tweet to them with links to your piece here and ask them to have you on, would you? <laughs> no, not <laughs> at all. I mean, I, like I said, yeah. I,
1: I I try yeah. to do these things, but it it is always like, um, yeah. I mean, it's it's I'm I'm always happy to do that, and I'm always also happy to talk to fellow journalists about this because, um, you know, the whole, um ecosphere of information around drugs and addiction is just so polluted with um, drug war propaganda and mm-hmm. um, just all kinds of stuff that people believe without questioning because that's what they were like, you know, taught in D.A.R.E. or something.
0: Um, right. And,
1: you know, people like don't even know the I definition. My kids had to go to D.A.R.E. <laughs> Do, uh, do you have
0: children? I, I don't know if you do. You have kids or you don't. No,
1: I don't have kids. I have nieces, and nep- nieces, and nephews, and a cat.
0: <laughs> so they well, my kids went through the Dare program, and trust me, like oh, wow. it, that was such a like waste of time. But I wanted just to do a little commercial of who I'm talking to. So, for all the listeners here, I'm talking to Maya Solovitz, and um, I want to say that. um, So, he's the the articles. The New York Times article is called "Addiction Doesn't Always Last, Last a Lifetime," and then also the wrong way to treat opioid addiction is another great one. And the book is "The Unbroken Brain." Now, I'd like to just talk about the beginning of your book. Will you talk about your own experience? Because being out here in California, I've really uh, done some investigating on the rehabs and sober living and how they're not in clinical settings and they can be in houses and there's no doctors or nurses. And, you know, talking about your own horrible experience, if you could create, God, I wish I had the dough to do it because I might do it, to create a clinic, small clinics that could be in every city, what would they be like compared to what they're like? What do you think so, that could I mean,
1: look I think, like? like? Yeah, I mean, I I, I basically think that um, we need to treat addiction like a medical problem.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: the thing about addiction is that um, there's an enormous number of ways you can get addicted. Um, there's an enormous number of things that can increase your risk. And those things are going to require very individualized approaches to recovery. Um, So first of all, I want to separate the idea of beds and treatment. Um, Vast majority of people with any kind of condition can be much more safely treated at home. Now, obviously, Mm -hmm. if you're homeless, that's a different story. And if you are living with a drug dealer um, or in some other sort of unsafe environment, um, that is a different story too. But most people actually aren't in that situation and the best way to get really individualized care is to start by um, having a complete psychiatric um, assessment by somebody who is not affiliated with anything, or except uh-huh. for possibly <laughs> ideally a university. Um, and so, you know, because if you know going in, okay, I have PTSD, okay, I have ADD, okay, I have depression, and I have trauma. Um, mm-hmm. and I've been medicating that for a really long time with a whole bunch of substances, right. um, like how am I going to, um, you know, sort of manage that without the substances? And, you know, maybe I'm going to need medication for the ADD. Maybe um, I'm going to need, um, you know, serious um, cognitive therapy for the trauma and the depression. Mm-hmm. Um, you now that um, all of this stuff has to be, um, you know, done at appropriate time because you don't want to like have somebody who's like three days um abstinent, um, who, um, you know, now we're gonna talk about, you know, um your sexual abuse as a child. Like, you know, right. <laughs> right three, uh, like, three days out. yeah yeah yeah, hmm. yeah no no i mean it's it's just like this has to be done in a reasonable way and often right. unfortunately it's not but so if, if i were like creating a treatment system it would have to be a system and it would have to be sort of like the um the hub and spoke model that they have in vermont where mm-hmm. like you know you can sort of go like and this is Specifically for opioids, but it it could really be used for any other um, type of addiction. And since most people with opioid addiction also have other addictions, um, you know it's important to just have an integrated system. But you know, for that with opioids, you know we have two medications that cut the death rate by half or more. But uh-huh. both of them need to be used long term in order for that to happen. Um, and we have a terrible system of of regulating them. So methadone, you have to go to the special clinic, and you've got to go there every day for 90 days for the first 90 days. And, you know, there's just like it. we just create all these barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, buprenorphine, at least, you can get directly from um, a doctor, um, a regular GP, um, anybody who's taken a, a training for it, but they only are limited to 275 patients. I mean, there's just like all of these stupid well, regulations that right, don't exist right, right. Um, for other conditions. Um, you know, I mean, I could pre- if I was a doctor, I could prescribe as much OxyContin as I like, but I can only prescribe treatment to with buprenorphine to 275 people. This makes no sense.
0: I know. Um, and did you, you see the new the news where the the company and the guy who created oxycodone? Oh, I know, I know. Patent? I'm actually
1: just writing about that right now. Um, oh. <laughs> I am for Vice. Um, because, yeah, like I mean. It's like, yeah, that, that is just, whoa, you know? Um, but. Um, I mean, of course, you want indeed. we want
0: something that does it, but for that guy, so here you create this problem. No, not I at mean, no, that really was can't. used for, for cancer, right? For people who were dying of cancer. Well, no, I mean, it's like, friends.
1: you know. No, I mean, like, this is the thing Purdue lied about Oxycontin in many, many different ways, yeah. but yeah. it is actually true that there are some people who benefit from opioids for chronic pain and yeah. who you know cuz if you if you think about it like you know you could have cancer pain that is horrible and that'll last six months and nobody cares so we can give you as much opioids as you like although even then people are you know um restricting them these days but um mm. the um you know let's say you have intractable pain that's going to last 30 years
0: yeah. now
1: suddenly you're not allowed to have opioids because like oh you might get addicted oh, like no. you know <laughs>
0: I mean, it's like it's, some 60- year old
1: person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I mean, but even just like, you know, like imagine, like and I've talked to many such people, you know, who, you know, in their 30s or 40s, they've had several car accidents. They have, um, you know, MS on top of that. Um, mm-hmm. They have, you know, some genetic thing on top of that. And then, like, you know, they're in agony and opioids bring that down to a five for them and they can function and then they take it away. And it's just not right. Um, So I think, you know, like what Purdue did was wrong, but that doesn't mean that pain wasn't also undertreated.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Um, What what (laughs)
1: happened, the real tragedy and what we're really screwing up now is we went from, um, you know, in order to cut the numbers of opioid prescriptions we are cutting down like basically something like 20% of chronic pain patients take like 80% of the opioids. So if you want to drive your numbers down really good, you just cut off these really sick people. And suddenly, look, we're not prescribing as much anymore. Our numbers are great. See, we solved the opioid epidemic. Um, Meanwhile, you've got those people either killing themselves or becoming severely disabled. Um, And then you have the... um, the people who are addicted, getting fentanyl on the street, which is more dangerous than Oxycontin. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, that is a great solution to that problem. Uh
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I I mean, that's why I I kind of reached back around to you because I had done it like a long time ago when I saw this article that got posted from one of my friends on Facebook. And when I read it, because I felt like what we were hearing through the media about, you know, it's like opioid oh, epidemic, and even the, the Orange County Register was doing an incredible job as exposing, right, some really terrible stuff going on here in Southern California with the rehabs and sober living fraud and that crazy whole thing That's you know, a lot of illegal stuff going on with insurance and yeah. billing and that you start to feel like, come on, like, this is over. Like, I drive by this huge billboard on Santa Monica Boulevard in West LA that talks about how many people die from smoking <laughs> and so much more. Right. But if there's, there's, it's hundreds true. of thousands of people, right? It's not like 37 or 60. It's just a lot. Even cancer is much bigger. But nobody's, like, on a horn, on MSNBC, CNN, and everyone's saying, oh, but, you know, over and over. So this article, it just it calmed me. You know, it's so... Uh, there's just something about it that's so fantastic and so honest and real. And then you have obviously the other options. You have smart recovery and you have, you know, the the native American and there's, you know, Zach tried it, didn't like 12 step and somebody, you know, there was one person who does, but even the native American, you're like, okay, well, if all of this can heal it, then, you know, it isn't a disease, is it? If if somebody can go back (laughs) to their culture and then their culture is going to uh, heal their issue, right? <laughs> it's so crazy. Well, I mean, you know, I,
1: it, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, like, like, I, in the book I, I argue that it's a learning disorder, and I think, um, you know, which means that, you know, just like ADD or other learning disorders, like sometimes medication is needed, sometimes therapy can do the trick. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, therapy, you know, your culture and, and healing your roots can be, you know, change the brain as much as, like, therapy, right? So right. I feel that, um you know, it's like, um, you know, chronic progressive disease, no. Brain damage disease, no. Um, mm-hmm. What it really – but something that, like, is a problem that should be dealt with by the medical system and the social care system as opposed to the criminal justice system, that's where I'm at. Like, I want it out of the criminal justice system, <laughs>
0: Me too. You and me both. It's uh, you know. And, and so, what is the most important thing if you could change something? I mean, I just asked you to sort of design you know your own place on the fly, which is not fair. But you know, it kind of popped into my head when I was thinking about it. But if you wanted something changed, there's a lot of this is like a big tree with a lot of roots, right? You know, it isn't yeah. just one part of it to fix this problem. Um, but if you could do, if one was at the top. Yeah, decriminalize
1: possession of everything. Um, Mm -hmm. Like there's no evidence that um, criminal sentences for possession do anything other than, in the case of opioids, take people's tolerance away and make them more likely to die. It costs literally hundreds of millions of dollars to have no effect. Um, We could put that money into evidence-based treatment particularly for opioids, like give people medication, don't force them into counseling, have counseling available for those who want it. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. just changes the entire environment because if you're sitting there and you want to talk about, you know, that traumatic experience um, you had as a kid and everybody else is sitting there watching the clock, like that's a very different and much less safe environment than if you're sitting in a group with all people who want to be there who want to talk about their you know, um, stuff and are ready to, um, you know, you're not wasting treatment, forcing people in who don't want it while denying it to people who do. Like, it makes no sense. Um, Right, right. So, so yeah, so I think, you know, if we decriminalize and and use that money wisely, we could could do a lot, Um, especially, um, you know, because um, the criminal justice system does a lot of harm. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, the debate over legalizing various other, you know, substances beyond marijuana um, is a much more complicated one. We certainly don't want to, like, have, you know, Philip Morris um, fentanyl, right? Um, Right. (laughs) um, And, you know, the makers of OxyContin did a very good job of pushing that through a legal system, supposedly Mm -hmm. mostly through legal means. And we don't Mm -hmm. want that. We need a much, much, much better regulated um, pharmaceutical industry. Um, and if I were running a drug company, I would want it that way because nobody trusts them right now. <laughs> right, you know, right.
0: Um, and also I think the commercials on television, so if you're, there's one that's for a certain, I mean I can't even remember what it is because there's so many like this, but that you know, right away the, uh, the actor's voice, the VO, like, speeds up. It says, you may have suicidal thoughts, and you may, you know, this, 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 it <laughs> could happen to you, and your brain could explode, and your eye could get swollen, or whatever, you know, your tongue could be, <laughs> And I was just like, why is Right. approved? Why has this been approved, you know? And uh, I, I just for me, and I wanted to ask you because I had read about a study, or not even a study, but they were doing an experiment in um, a prison, I think in Kentucky, where they were giving them Vivitrol. So what is right. that? I know that naltrexone and Vivitrol it was used is used for uh, alcohol uh, problems and dependency. Are you aware like it, does it work for opioids?
1: Okay, vivitrol so this it? is the thing.
0: I've actually written stuff? on this, and the
1: um, this is the thing. We have data showing that methadone and buprenorphine cut the death rate in half. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have such data for Vivitrol, um, and there is a real there are two big issues associated now. Um, Vivitrol is basically the opposite of an opioid, so it blocks your opioid receptors but does not right. activate them, mm-hmm. whereas like, um, like heroin and, and methadone and, and buprenorphine activate these receptors. So mm-hmm. um, what that means is if you are going from you have activated the system in a really intense way for a really long time, right. um, and now you're slamming it in the opposite direction when in fact it is one of the chemical systems that relieve stress. Yeah. This can be well and so and and the key element to this here is that like it doesn't just block external opioids, it blocks your endogenous opioids too. So mm-hmm. yeah, you can yeah. end up with a feeling of anhedonia or depression or pleasurelessness. Um, right. now some right. people do totally fine on this. But other people um you know, it basically takes all the joy out of life, and yet yeah, they're not going to take a second shot of that. Um, right, so, right. They want to um, do
0: that. So it does. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, is the article already out. Yeah. Maybe later I'll take a oh, look yeah, and I'll yeah, try to find it.
1: That is. Yeah. It's it's on Vice. I think it was like from last year or something. But the um the the that's one problem. So it it can cause depression. Um, Interestingly, of course, opioids themselves can cause depression, as can antidepressants. So, again, this is going to be highly individual. If Vivitrol works for you, that's great. Um, But if you are having these horrible feelings, you should be probably on an agonist instead, which is like methadone or buprenorphine. Um, Anyway, the other issue potentially with Vivitrol is that when you – So when you take opioids regularly, you get tolerance to them, and so that that you're at less risk of overdosing. But if you take Vivitrol, it's kind of giving you the opposite of tolerance. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you stop taking it, you are at super high risk of overdose. Now, this is a real bad Mm -hmm. problem if you stop Mm -hmm. taking it because it made you depressed, right? Yeah, right. Um, and it's another real bad problem if you stop taking it because it's expensive and you can't afford it anymore. It's and very expensive. You... Yeah. So, I mean, it's very expensive and it potentially blocks pleasure. Gee, why aren't people uptaking this drug unless they're in prison?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and plus, what we were, me, a friend and I were talking about it, is that if it, it's 1400 a month, why are the prison people getting it, but the people out here can't afford it? Like, that doesn't make sense. Who's paying for that in prison? You know I mean? Well, no. Uh, naltrexone I mean, is so much are... cheaper, right? Naltrexone oh, yes. is much cheaper.
1: So oral and times, because... right. See, but this is the problem there. So in Australia, um, using oral naltrexone, the overdose death rate was four times higher, stopping that than stopping um, uh, methadone or buprenorphine. Um, so this Mm -hmm. problem does not happen with alcohol because alcohol, you know, you slip once, you're not going to die from the relapse. Um, you, you know, you don't have the tolerance and, and all that issue. Also, alcohol is sort of acts indirectly on opioid receptors, like not directly. So, um, if with, um, naltrexone, it does not necessarily, um, you know, uh, most people I know that have used it um, ha- or, or most of the studies that I've seen of people who have used it have found that it is more successful for people with a moderation goal um, than an abstinence
0: goal. Right, um, right, right. That, that's what I've heard too, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and so, um, again, it, you know, this will vary from person to person, um, but it, it seems to reduce craving for the second drink more than the first. Um, and so, for somebody who you know just wants to like you know um, uh, hang out and and um, and and have a glass of wine or something um, and be social, um, that may be the perfect thing. If if you know normally they can't stop after you know one or two.
0: Right, right. Um, what are you right now? What are you working on? That it's really so really I'm about passionate about.
1: I'm I'm attempting to start writing the um, first history of harm reduction. Um, And harm reduction is basically the idea um, with relation to drugs that um, the goal of policy and treatment um, should be to reduce drug-related harm, not reduce the number of people or the amount of drug use. So the idea is we don't really care if you get high or not. We care that you don't die. Um, and when you base policy on that, like you end up with a very different policy. You end up with decriminalization. You end up with you know needle exchange and safe injection facilities um, and treatment that is kind and gentle and nurturing. And when you mm-hmm. have treatment that's welcoming like that, the research shows that it's really much more effective than just telling people to shut up and sit down and listen and, you know, your best thinking got you here. Right,
0: right, right. I was in a small town in Germany, Wiesel, where my mother passed away suddenly and I had to go. And so it was a really mm. great but very small hospital. And you could see the um, people who had drug problems were coming to get treatment, like they were coming to get safe whenever, maybe methadone, ah, right. maybe – Yeah, because they have socialized medicine, right, throughout the, it it was really, it was refreshing to be out of the country, i got to tell you, with the policies going on, I was like, yeah, you know, (laughs) let me get Germany or Portugal or somewhere else, and the other thing, too, in probation, like, uh, forces absence and 12-step, like, you have to have, like, nothing, so if you are on probation, do you know that, that that's in, like, every probation, like, okay, you're on probation, this is, like, part of it, like, when did that start? Oh, you can't drink every yeah. oh, I can't drink ever. I can't drink. uh it's like why? he's a grown man. He did his time. Like why can't right. he have a No, beer? I mean
1: there's yeah, there's there's I mean, you know, the reality is that our drug policies are often more about humiliating and controlling poor people and people of color um than they are about successfully addressing alcohol and other drug problems. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, if you just think about the fact that addiction is defined as compulsive drug use that continues despite negative consequences. Well, okay, negative consequences, that's what we're going to use to fix it. Mm, (laughs) Isn't it defined by its resistance to negative consequences? This is, like, not going to be the smartest plan. But if if the real thing is about, you know, oh, my God, these scary other people do these scary substances, let's control them, then then our system makes perfect sense. And, you know, like, that used to sound like some crazy, radical, lefty idea. But if you just look at the history of where the drug laws came from and the right. crazy level of racism that was present um, in the debates over whether we should have these laws or not, mm-hmm. and you look at the fact that, like, you couldn't, no rational person could sit down and decide cigarettes should be legal and marijuana shouldn't.
0: Yeah. One of so are, you gonna go to, are you going to D.C. to talk to our representatives? Are you going to be one of those women? I we can walk through the. And, like, because you really need this. But we also need people like you and I and people I met at the Drug Policy Alliance actually running for office. Because when you look at what they look like and what they think, they're crazy. They're, like, so I mean, well, old. I mean, like they, like, oh, <laughs> I know. I mean,
1: like. I, I suspect I'm ruled out from running for office, but the, um, uh, the you know, I do think that, um, well, first of all, I, I think um, we are probably going to um, start to be more sensible um, in general, hopefully starting in November. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that um, the younger generation um, was not raised on the level of drug war propaganda that our generation was. Um, right. and it seems insane, like marijuana prohibition makes zero sense to them.
0: I know, um, I know.
1: and once you see that you could end marijuana prohibition and the world doesn't fall. And in fact, things get better. Um, then you can start to say, wait a minute, why is putting people in a cage for possession of any drug sensible? Like, nobody can come up with a rational argument for that. Like, it's really interesting because, like, in the 80s and 90s, everybody's like, we must have possession laws because we need to send the right message that drug use is bad and you go to jail and it's a crime and we need to stigmatize Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And now we're all about, oh, let's reduce stigma. We need to, well, you can't criminalize something and destigmatize it at the same time. Those are opposite goals like one or the other um um, the more sensible one is to destigmatize it um so that you can treat it like the health problem that it is and you know i mean in um throughout mental health um health um social um stuff is essential to all forms of recovery like there's lots of people who you know, their recovery from depression might come from, you know, drumming or um, Mm -hmm, from, mm -hmm. um, you know, singing or... um, Joining a choir, right, or swimming. Church or whatever it is for you, you know. Um, And so, like, that doesn't mean that that depression isn't a serious medical condition and that antidepressants aren't necessary for some people. It just means that the brain is complicated and, you know, um, social connection is a very powerful drug. (laughs) <laughs> in fact, yeah and then some of these new it. things
0: too that i learned from being at the dpa last year where i did finally meet you in person was the use of yes. ibogaine and then ketamine infusions like this whole new thing with psilocybin i was fascinated with that and know someone who did an infusion and met someone there who had gone to, to do the ibogaine not just for i mean the um, thing
1: with that the thing with ibogaine that is potentially problematic is that it can cause heart problems
0: yeah, it's reading that you have to have a check on you. Um, you have to have a... Yeah,
1: and some of those yeah. places are rogue places that don't do that, and people have died. The other thing about Ibogaine is that um, uh, it is an abstinence treatment in the sense that once you come off it, um, you, know, you have the experience for a day or two, and then you are abstinent. Um, and that means that you are as high risk as somebody who just came out of a 12-step rehab. Um, so, you know, um, the, it is, you know, there are definitely people who have the amazing insight experience and then change their behavior overnight. Um right. But that is not true for the vast majority of people who go somewhere, have this amazing experience, and then go right back into the same environment. Um, Interesting. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. But I like the fact that the numbers would... Yeah, yeah, sorry, the numbers that you gave, though, about buprenorphine and um, the methadone, like, low is, like, the death rate by 50%. Isn't that enough to just make that really available everywhere? Well, no,
1: that's what we should, I mean, you know, like, this is what I've been trying yeah. to shout from the rooftop as much as possible because, you know, right, we have this, like, imagine if you had a chemotherapy that did that. Like, yeah. people would want to, like, put it in the water supply, you know? I mean, <laughs> obviously, we can't do that um uh, but, um, the, you know, what we should do is just eliminate the insane barriers that we put up to this stuff. And so that literally, if you just want it for one day, you can go to a needle exchange, you can go to emergency room, you can go to a doctor right. and just get one day and just that day you're not at risk from fentanyl. Um, you know, but we're so obsessed with, oh, they're going to sell it on the street. Well, there would be no street market for it if everybody right. could get it for free, right? So... Right, right. What a
0: good point. Really Yeah, really good point. Um, <laughs> 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 um, you know, because,
1: like, nobody wants, like, look, if you're on the street and you're wanting to get high, you want, like, heroin. Um, you don't want buprenorphine. Um, you know, it's like you may settle for buprenorphine so you don't get sick, um, but, um... It's you know in the context of the huge heroin market that we have now,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: having more buprenorphine out there can only do good. You know, I mean, like if you went to a desert island where there was no opioids and you gave people buprenorphine, then you might see buprenorphine misuse. But that is not the situation we have here.
0: Right, right, right. Now, I know you told me that you just had forty-five minutes, so we're getting close to the marker. Um, I want to okay. thank you. So much because I know how busy you are. I really appreciate it. So we've been talking to Maya Solovitz, and her newest article is in the New York Times. Um, Addiction doesn't always last a lifetime, and her book uh, Unbroken Brain. Uh, it was really a pleasure to talk to you. I hope we can do it again. Call me anytime if you have if you want to have a voice on my blog talk radio show. It's really oh, great. You're welcome. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Oh, yeah, you're totally welcome. And, yes, I will um, happily do again um uh, when I do have a little more time.
0: Yeah, when you're not so busy, maybe after you do the advice piece that you were just talking about or whatever you you know feel like you're not getting enough out there, and I'll send some emails to some people for you. But um, sure. really fantastic work. Thank you for all of these articles that you've written. The other one was The Wrong Way to Treat Opioid Addiction is also a fantastic article that came out in January of 2018. All, right. Um, all right,
1: so, yeah, you're welcome, and I'd better run. Um, <laughs> all right,
0: you'll be around right. So, again, um, Maya Selvich, you, you can find her on Facebook and Twitter, The Unbroken Brain. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you again. Take care. Thanks, okay, Maya. Cool. All right.
1: Oh, you too. Okay, bye now. Bye.